This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash Counselor Toolbox. Counselor Toolbox podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, the world's largest e-counseling platform, providing accessible and affordable counseling services via messaging, live chat, phone, or video. To apply to be a counselor at BetterHelp with no overhead fees or cost, go to betterhelp.com slash toolbox. You can also find a counselor by going to betterhelp.com slash toolbox and clicking on Get Started in the upper right corner. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation. This is a continuation of the Journey to Recovery series, and today we're going to be talking about behavior modification basics. And when I say basics, I mean basics. You could do this, go over this for, you know, 40 or 100 hours and, you know, still be learning new stuff. So I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and if you have any questions, please feel free to um, let me know. We're going to define behavior modification, explore how it can be useful in practice, and learn some very basic behavior modification terms. So this is important to us as clinicians, as humans, as parents, as teachers, as clergy, whatever you're doing, you're going to try to change somebody's behavior at some point in time, whether it's yours or someone else's. So it's important to know what causes behavior change. And if your own behavior starts to change and you're not doing anything to change it, like all of a sudden you stop going to the gym, that's been me lately, um, you need to be able to look back and go, okay, what was more rewarding? Why did I lose the motivation? And we'll be talking about that in terms of behavior strain um, in a little while. So behavior modification helps people understand some of the reasons they act or react the way they do because stimuli get conditioned, etc. Um, you know, if you see a snake and you grew up out in the country and you're used to snakes, you know, you may see the snake and be like, hey, little dude. Um, if you grew up in the city and you're not good with snakes, you see a snake, same snake, and you may be freaked out. So behavior modification would help you define that the trigger for that excitement reaction um, that you ended up calling fear was the snake because you had learned that that would be dangerous. Um, by understanding what rewards or causes and motivates people's behavior or discourages it, punishes, strains their behavior, we can better address their issues. So, you know, we really need to understand 
all of the different things. Remember when we talked about motivation, we said there's emotional, mental, physical, environmental, social sources of motivation. You know, there are a lot of different sources. So we need to look at that. And if you're a behaviorist, you may be kind of shriveling right now. And, you know, that's okay. We're going to address some of those things. Strict behavior modification focuses on observable, measurable conditions to the exclusion of cognitive interpretation. So we're looking at what the person saw, what stimulus was present, and what the reaction was. We're not saying that caused the person to be afraid, which caused the person to do this. We say this triggered this reaction, and we're leaving the cognitive stuff out of it, which can be useful. It can be constraining, which is why cognitive behavioral developed um, as a response to straight-up behavioral. Um, but anyway, we're just going to focus on behaviors for the most part today. So how can this be useful in practice? Traditional or strict behavior modification helps simplify the stimulus reaction. You put your hand on something hot, it burns, that's the trigger, you're going to pull your hand off the stove. You know, pretty simple. Integrating cognitive interpretations or labels like sadness, fear, anger, can help people in identifying and addressing what's causing their distress. Um, behaviorists would just refer to it as an excitatory response. You know, when the dog um, heard the bell ring and he would start to salivate, you know, you could, you could say that he was happy or anticipatory that he was going to get meat, or you could just say that it was a biological excitatory response. Don't get all caught up in that. I'm not going to try to trick you on the quiz um, when it comes to using the exact phraseology that a behaviorist would make. I want you to get the gist of it today. Understanding what causes feelings, you know, what causes people's reactions, can also give them a greater sense of empowerment. If they know, and I've, when we talked about environmental interventions for depression, you know, I talked about how sometimes I'll walk into a room and it's this particular shade of pukey blue-gray that reminds me of institutional settings I've been in before. So it's a trigger that triggers a sort of unpleasant reaction in me. So I can start understanding the triggers in the environment or the environmental stimuli that create a reaction. So we're going to start out real simple with puppies because I like puppies. Organisms, and that's humans and cats and dogs and whatever, learn through direct and observational reinforcement and correction or punishment. So direct is when it happens to them. You know, if you do something, you put your hand on the burner and it gets burnt, you know, you're going to learn from that. That's direct experience. You can also watch someone put their hand on the burner and get burned and go, oh, guess I'm probably not going to do that. So people do learn both ways. So with puppies, you know, when they're little, they're trying to figure out their dominance, their hierarchy, how rough is too rough. And if you've ever gotten a puppy in rescue that was separated from its litter too soon, you'll know that that puppy has very poor manners a lot of times um, because it never learned the hierarchy and it never learned how rough was too rough. So puppy one tackles puppy two. Puppy two perceives this as a threat. It's a play threat, but it's a threat. So puppy two says, oh, uh-uh and goes back and tackles puppy one. So that's the counter threat. Both puppies get a little surge of adrenaline, and they're not angry. They're just, they're excited, and they're playing, and they're wound up. The puppy that dominates 
receives a greater dopamine surge that reinforces that behavior. He's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm top dog. And so he's going to be more likely to assert his dominance again and kick other puppies off the teat, um, tackle other puppies, etc. If puppy one plays too rough, then puppy two is either going to become more aggressive and try to fight back and be like, no, that's not, that's not okay. Or puppy two is just going to leave. He's going to be like, you ain't any fun to play with. So that punishes puppy, puppy one's behavior. Now, you see it a lot with, with mama dogs. And the puppy will go up and he'll start trying to play with her. And she's like, go away, kid, you bother me. And she will snap at him, not bite him, but be very demonstrative in her way of telling him that he's being too rough or he's being annoying. And you'll see the puppy back down. And he generally doesn't make that mistake again, at least for a little while. So what we're looking at there is direct learning of, you know, what's going on now. The other puppies may be watching and learn vicariously, but that's a whole different thing. In addition to direct and observational learning, humans learn to label certain internal experiences with feelings words. So take the example of Sally going to a pet store. A puppy comes up, sits in her lap, puts its head on her leg, and this contact, we know from studies, usually causes the release of dopamine and oxytocin, your bonding chemical and your reward chemicals, and Sally may label this as happy. You know, it makes me happy when dogs do that. They come over, they lay in your lap, and you're like, oh, that's sweet. Um, so that is not behavioral in, in, in a sense because you're labeling an, an internal state. But what you're doing is taking your physiological presentation and, and you're putting a title to it. Now, if Sally had previously had a threatening experience with a dog, when she saw it, you know, even if it was a puppy, maybe she had a bad experience with a chihuahua or something, some other little dog. When she saw it, her body might respond by secreting adrenaline, kicking off the fight or flight reaction, which she might label fear. You know, so we learn to label different things based on our experiences. And a lot of times things like excitement and fear, neurologically or neurochemically, it's, they're very, very similar. So we have to differentiate um, on a higher level, what's going on? You know, I, I've shared with you guys my fear of roller coasters before. Some people think it's exhilarating. I think it's terrifying. We're both having a surge of adrenaline when we're going down that hill at a bazillion miles an hour. So the points, you know, what is my point? People with dysphoria, and I just use that term to cover anger, anxiety, depression, you know, the gamut. Um, People with dysphoria or unhelpful behaviors may need to recondition that X, whatever it is, is not actually a threat anymore. So yeah, Sally may have had a bad experience with a dog 10 years ago. So it's possible for her to recondition that so she's not anxious whenever she's around dogs and recognize that um, dogs are not actually all dogs because you have some overgeneralization there. All dogs are not actually a threat anymore. But it would require, you know, breaking that pairing and having positive experiences um, with that animal. Another example of reconditioning is um, systematic desensitization. If you're terrified of spiders, for example, you know, you see a spider, you're like, oh my gosh, freak out. Um, Okay, so the first step would be to be able to think about a spider 
and calm yourself down so you feel you don't feel dysphoric the next step would be to you know look at a video of a spider and be able to get to the point where you could calm yourself down and eventually where you could look at the spider on the video without getting freaked out if any of you have watched um indiana jones and the temple of doom i think it was temple of doom where he was down in the snake pit i know that's not a spider but it still gives me the heebie-jeebies um but i digress once they get to the point where they can see it on a video monitor then they go into a room where the spider is in a cage and they can look at it and it's gradual steps shaping of their behavior until they get to the point where they can actually hold a non-venomous spider and they're like okay this isn't so bad so systematic desensitization sometimes people need to relabel the state um, hungry stressed bored and tired all get confused with among people a lot of times so encouraging people who are you know maybe they're just they're stress eating they're eating a lot they don't know why they just don't feel happy well let's look at you know what's going on what's triggering this behavior because if you're stressed and you're eating to deal with the stress then it's probably not going to resolve the situation so we want to look at what's the trigger for this biochemical state explore the dialectics sometimes there are things like going on a first date you know that can be terrifying but it can also be very very exciting so encouraging people to embrace both aspects of it yeah there are parts that are a little unnerving for some people and there are parts that are just really thrilling so recognizing that the whole thing is not terrifying and the fifth thing people can do is unhook so instead of saying i am terrified of snakes saying i am having the thought that snakes are terrifying because like i said um well i guess it was in yesterday's webinar and smoking cessation we can have thoughts all day long and they come and go um but it's easier to have a thought and let it go than to say i am which is an inter enduring internal characteristic oops so basic terms unconditioned stimulus and response a stimulus is something um that triggers a behavior okay whether an unconditioned is something that is present in all all beings you don't have to learn what it is so something that evokes an unconditioned or automatic response would do the same thing for an infant as it does for an adult roughly so a loud noise will trigger a startle response pain will trigger a response um, excessive cold and heat um, or physiological contact we know that physiological contact most of the time um, will elicit the release of oxytocin not always a hundred percent true you know through learning that can be reconditioned if touch um, in somebody's history has been negative or punishing in some way then it might not be elicit the same response but there are a lot of things you know just think would a baby understand what this means and that's an unconditioned stimulus a conditioned stimulus is something that in itself has no meaning to the person you know you can show it to a three-year-old and he's like i don't know what that means think of a yellow light so when we were first when we were kids you know even before we started driving we learned that a yellow light meant something it meant that it was getting ready to turn red and the conditioned response depending on who your parent was 
was to either slow down so you could stop for the red or floor it so you wouldn't have to wait at the stoplight. But that's the conditioned response. And a lot of times when people get older and they start learning to drive, their conditioned response to a yellow light is going to reflect their observational learning from childhood. They saw mom floor it to get through the light. So, you know, that's what they're going to be more likely to do. Stimuli and responses can be traced back to survival, you know, or some type of learning or, or reward. And a lot of times we refer to this as flight, fight, flee, forget, or repeat. When there's a threat, you'll, you're either going to fight or flee. You know, that's what we do. If it's not worth your energy, you may just forget about it. You know, something happens and you're like, yeah, not worth paying it, you know, committing that to memory. If it's something that produces pleasure or some sort of a reward, you're more likely going to repeat it. So, you know, things that you do that you're like, you know, I've done that 15 different times and I just don't remember it. Uh, driving to take my son to his best friend's house, for example. If I'm in the passenger seat, I don't pay attention. I'm just like, you know, I see where we're going, but I don't commit it to, rem to memory and I just forget it. Now, if I drive it once or twice, then I remember um, because it's important to me. Remember those characteristics of learning we talked about. Um, so it, it's important to figure out, you know, was this something that was rewarding enough to use energy for to remember? Discriminative stimuli, and these are my favorites, um, and we talk about these in terms of basically triggers a lot of times, is a stimulus that triggers a reaction, and this can include vulnerabilities. Now, again, behave, pure behaviorists would be like, ah, but we're going to be a little loosey-goosey with our terminology. Um, and a vulnerability is something that predisposes you to excitatory reactions, if you will, like anger or anxiety. So, you know, if I have really low blood sugar, you know, that may be a discriminative stimulus. That may be some, something that triggers irritability in me. So going to work, you know, and I want you to think about this. What sort of things are going on in your world when you get up and you go to work and you're thinking you're going to have or you're having a good day? You're just like, the sun is shining, the traffic wasn't bad, you know, everybody, all my clients are showing up for their appointments, da-da-da. You know, that's a good day. So those are stimuli that trigger a positive response. Um, if you're having a bad day, you know, there may be other things, like you get up and your tire's flat and you overslept or whatever. And when we get to chaining, this will be important because a lot of times things kind of add up. Learned helplessness, and if you remember from Psych 101 that, you know, the, the experiment with the German Shepherd, poor dog, you know, I hated this experiment, um, where they had a dog and there was a fence, and either side of the fence was an electrified floor. So he was on side A, and they would electrify the floor, it would hurt, so he would jump over the fence to side B, and he would be fine for a few minutes, and then they would electrify side B. And he'd be like, ah, jump back over to side A. They'd screw with him a little bit and have him jump back and forth. Eventually, they electrified both sides. So it didn't matter which side he was on. He was getting shocked. You know what he did? Gave up. He just laid down. He's like, screw it. Doesn't matter what I do. I'm going to get shocked. Uh, 
and this is what we want to remember with our clients when they have learned helplessness which is why um, making sure that we create opportunities well and with our kids too, um, create opportunities for success and frequent small successes so they don't get frustrated and go it doesn't matter what I do I just keep losing so fight or flee like I said any stimuli that presents a threat of pain or death and pain can be emotional or or um, physical and death can be any kind of loss not just biological death can trigger the excitatory fight or flight response that HPA axis kicks in starts dumping adrenaline and glutamate and start saying you know we need to do something about this because there might be a threat just like when your when your fire alarm goes off you know it triggers that fight or flight reaction you're just like ah it's a loud noise anyway you have to check you know sometimes fire alarms go off especially smoke alarms go off for no apparent reason um, or at least no real threat reason so that response that immediate excitatory response is simply the body's way of saying a neurochemical way of triggering you to get up and do something and check it out so a useful intervention for people who have a lot of anger and anxiety is when they start getting excited anger angry or anxious have them identify what they um, perceive is the threat when they perceive the threat um, then they've got to figure out if it's actually a threat and you know what was a threat when they were 10 you know like strangers may not be a threat now that they're 40 you know they can walk into Home Depot and be perfectly safe whereas you know a 10 year old walking around Home Depot you know who knows um, but have them identify if it is actually a threat right now and then break down parts of the situation into controllable and uncontrollable threats like um, you know let's stay with being in a shopping mall even some people as adults might be a little anxious in a shopping mall especially if they've got some social anxiety um, and, and that's okay um, so what's the threat they're afraid of making a fool of themselves or something is this actually a threat maybe maybe not what parts of the situation are controllable well you probably wouldn't go to the mall on noon the Sunday before Christmas you know that's just it's going to be jam-packed there's going to be people everywhere and your threat meter is going to go through the roof you'd want to go you know to Walmart at 2 in the morning in order to do your final shopping if you had to so parts of it are controllable you can't make other people just go away but you can control your environment and yes for freeze is also an additional part of um, fight or flee and uh, a lot of times that results and that's kind of your learned helplessness where when you have been in a position where you couldn't get out of it you just kind of you know, froze but that was self-protective in whatever way it was it was like your body said you can't get away and you can't fight so you're you got to figure out how to get through this conditioning so people need to know their triggers and mindfulness can help people identify positive stimuli things in their environment that produce dopamine surges that trigger dopamine surges dopamine happens when your body says that's awesome that's protective let's do that again 
So what things in their environment? It can be pictures, it can be sayings, anything that makes them happy. And remind them to think of all of their senses, not just visual. Negative stimuli. And you know, positive and negative is kind of, um, it's not objective, but we're going to use that for today. Negative stimuli produces an adrenaline surge. It, it triggers that threat response system or your HPA axis, which leads to the fight, flee, freeze, forget, or repeat um, sequel. It's important for people to remember that if there's lots of negative stimuli, it's kind of like a pressure cooker. Little things will build up. So one irritant here, you know, their, their roommate left the cap off the toothpaste, and another irritant here, um, somebody didn't refill the coffee maker after they drank the last cup of coffee and another little irritant here you know by the end of the day all those little irritants all those little stimuli that it triggered small um, excitatory reactions can eventually add up and lead to a more explosive reaction stimuli that trigger a negative reaction can be reconditioned as neutral by embracing the dialectics so if you get up and it's a snowy day outside um, and you wanted to go to work or to the gym or whatever, or you're like, oh my gosh, this is the beginning of week two where we've been on lockdown with my kids because school's closed and I'm going to lose my mind. Um, <laughs> I've been there. Um, but finding the positive, you know, what else can you do? There, there are all these negative parts about it, but are there any positives? What can you do to embrace the good and the bad? And then being psychologically flexible. And, you know, we, I've talked about that a lot in other videos on um, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. But psychological flexibility means accepting whatever it is radically, saying it is what it is. Okay, it's a rainy day. And then determining is getting upset to use, a, to use an emotional term, is getting upset about this getting me closer to or farther away from the things that make my life rich and meaningful? Because that it uses a lot of energy when you get upset. And is there anything I can do right now in this situation to improve the next moment to help me get back on track moving towards those things in my life that will make it rich and meaningful? You know, if you're going to perseverate on it being a rainy day and being unhappy that you can't go out running and, you know, you just washed your car and yada, yada. Well, yeah, you're going to waste a lot of energy and it's probably not going to help you get towards anything that's going to make life rich and meaningful. If on the other hand, you look at it in terms of, well, I don't have to wash my car now. Um, you know, at least it might cool things off a little bit. Rain usually signals the beginning of a cooler front coming in. However you want to look at it, uh, looking at the rain as something that's going to help you start moving towards things that are important in your life. You know, I like cooler, cooler days because I like to be outside. Um, my garden always needs watering, and I'm going to have a better harvest if it's raining outside. I hate washing my car, so, you know, if God does it for me, cool. Um, so those are all the reasons I look at this situation, the rainy day, as something that actually could be beneficial or helpful towards moving me towards the things that are important in my life. And repeat. You know, I, I keep talking about, you know, fight, flee, freeze, forget, or repeat. Adding and noticing positive stimuli in the environment is vital. So include happiness triggers 
in your environment and and we talked about this in environmental interventions for depression so i'm not going to belabor it but include smells that you smell in your it makes you smile it makes you feel relaxed it makes you have that calgon moment um sights what do you like to see that makes you happy um I, i've started preemptively feeding the bunny rabbits in our neighborhood we obviously we live on a farm so um you know during the winter they'll have a food source i love seeing my kids you know and and the things that they do so i love being around them i love having pictures of them around periodically if i'm having a funky moment at work i'll go into my um google drive and i'll just look at some pictures of my kids when they were younger and stuff and just re reflect back to those happy times sounds babbling brook that's mine um some people like the sound of a thunderstorm whatever it is put it in your environment um ocean waves those are good ones too and what can you feel and some people are like how do you do touch well i like having the feel of a crisp autumn breeze so when it's cool outside i try to go out as much as possible so i can feel that and you can actually kind of smell fall in the air i don't know why but there's a, some smell to it um but different things that you like to feel or um you know some days i will wear particular sweaters that are super soft and that makes me happy and you know whatever it is for that person make sure they've got that when you go home you know try this at home and with your kids and say what things do you want to have in your environment in your room in in wherever in your playroom that make you happy you know what do you want to be able to see and encourage them to think about the things that that make them happy so putting it together and this is one of those question slides how can you use discriminative stimuli to increase a feeling of self-control and self-efficacy that is how can you use things in the environment um, to remind people to have a can-do attitude you know obviously you can give them little notes going you can do this um, you can call them and give them positive um, encouragement i remember um when i was working on my dissertation my best friend at the time you know, i would call her she was two chapters ahead of me in her dissertation and i was just like stephanie i don't know that i'm going to be able to do this <laughs> um i had an infinite home at the time and she had a, a toddler so we were kind of in the same boat and uh, she was like you got this you know you just have to do 15 and do a little bit each day and before long you know those little bits will add up and she was right you know so those days i started feeling just stuck um were the days that i generally slowed down a little bit and i just did the minimum and i congratulated myself for doing the minimum and i did something else um you can also increase people's feelings of self-control and self-efficacy by you know having them hang reminders around or have a, a booklet that reminds them of things that they have accomplished um, have them do something creative jesse suggested like knitting woodworking pottery and display their work where they can see it so they can remember that they're not going to be perfect at everything but they are really good at some things um, and encourage them to journal you know if they're doing it on their own um, or you know in 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 therapy when they come in encourage them to reflect we should all reflect on what we did well that day you know what did we do having that can-do attitude means being able to look back and going i accomplished that 
all right, you know, not a problem. Um, and then you look back over those little successes and eventually you've accomplished an entire thing, whatever it is. What types of things can you put in the environment to remind people that they're lovable? You know, remind them to take care of themselves. Uh, one of my favorite authors, if you will, for this is Sark. And if you've ever seen anything by Sark, it's um, extraordinarily creative. And I am not. You know, I am not a creative person. Um, so having them, you know, participate in some things that uh, remind them they are lovable and surround themselves with sayings, with notebooks, you know, as you say, of all the reasons that they're lovable that they're good, that they're worthy. Um, have them review, review a list of strengths that they have on a daily basis. Um, one of the activities we do in my self-esteem group is everyone will write a, a note card to every other person about something that's positive about that person. So if there's 15 people in the group, then the person walks away with 15 notes. Each person walks away with 15 notes that reflect different good things about them so they can review that because sometimes we're, we're we are our hardest critics um if you've and and a question comes in if you ever had a client complete a list of why they're lovable only to have them come back with a list of why they are unlovable and i haven't had that experience but i can see obviously where it could happen um and sometimes because of prior trauma abuse all that kind of stuff people feel so broken um feel so guilty so they hate themselves so much they can't see how they're lovable so obviously you know there are sometimes you it's not appropriate to at a certain point in time to do that activity if you think it's just going to have them perseverate on the reasons they're unlovable um, what i might start out with is uh with that particular person is having them talk about all the reasons that their best friend or their children are lovable and then take those characteristics and say okay you know your children are lovable because you know whatever and help them draw connections between those characteristics that they see as lovable in other people and how they actually have those characteristics and that will help them you know slowly make that connection um but it's it's obviously a stage-wise process and and making sure that they um, believe what they're saying because one of the reasons affirmations don't work for a lot of people and you'll learn this in compassion focused therapy is that if people do not believe what they're saying if they're doing the stewart smiley and looking in the mirror and going i'm good enough i'm smart enough and gosh darn it pe people like me but they don't believe it it ain't going anywhere. They can say it until they're blue in the face, um, but it's not going to impact them internally. So we need to make sure that the activities we're having them do are egocentric. You know, they're not something that the person just can't even wrap, wrap their head around. Um, we can also use discriminative stimuli to decrease anger, angry responses. Um, remind... Remind them to use coping or distress tolerance skills. So I encourage clients to keep an emergency card with them, either on their mobile device or in their wallet or whatever, that has five different things they can do when they're feeling angry or anxious. 
And we start out looking at the skills that are on the accepts and improves acronym of dialectical behavior therapy. But we also talk about the ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy and any techniques the client has that has worked for them in the past. You know, we talk about how to add those to their list. And we pair that list down, you know, to the top five because they don't want to carry around a, a laundry list. But uh, that gives them ways that they can recognize um, their angry, angry responses and they can respond appropriately. Um, so positive reinforcement. Provide something positive in order to increase the likelihood a behavior will happen again. Now... Positive reinforcement, and I want you to think about whether this sounds like anything that we've talked about before. Touch, gifts, words of affirmation, acts of service, and quality time. And then power is, you know, another one that I threw in there. What are those five things? Trick question, going once, going twice. Those are your five love languages. Yes, exactly. Carolyn got it. Um, so for a lot of people... Love languages are reinforcing. So when they do something, if it gets them a reward of some sort, gifts like money, food, um, power, you know, it gets them something, that can be rewarding. Um, but for other people, reward may come in different forms. So we need to identify what's rewarding for that client, for that behavior, or for that person, for that behavior. Negative reinforcement removes, remains that means removing something like negative in order to increase the likelihood a behavior will occur again. So reinforcement always increases behavior. Negative reinforcement means, you know, if you start doing a behavior, it'll reduce nagging and fighting. So the person may be like, well, when I do this, we're not at each other's throats all the time. I think I'm going to keep doing it. Or dropping restitution or additional charges upon completion of counseling. You know, that's negative reinforcement that I see in the courts a lot. Or for children, they can leave the table once their vegetables are eaten. Um, so if they don't want to have to sit at the table, um, I try not to say you can avoid eating your vegetables because I'm a big one on vegetables. But, you know, the unpleasantness of just having to sit there while, while everybody else finishes um, can be elim eliminated. So thinking about what types of things can be removed for that person that will help them be happier and more excited. Positive punishment adds something negative to decrease the likelihood the behavior will reoccur. Antabuse is an example of positive punishment. So if somebody takes antabuse, then when they drink, they're going to have a very violent negative reaction. Um, when children do something inappropriately um, and they're being punished, they may have additional chores they have to do. If clients are, you know, test dirty on a drug screen, they may have additional sessions added to their treatment plan. For people who are, um, you know, maybe wanting to stop a behavior, um, like, I don't know, emotional eating. I, I don't know when you would really use rubber band snaps, but I know people use them a lot. They can snap a rubber band, and that reminds them not to do it. Um, when you start getting angry, you can snap a rubber band, and that may remind you to check yourself. Punishment has to be considered unpleasant for that person, though. What you consider unpleasant may not be a big deal to someone else. Negative punishment removes something a person likes. So removing their freedom or privileges, you know, grounding, jail, whatever. 
taking away their money through fines. Um, in relationships, negative punishment me could mean not giving in, you know, not exhibiting those same loving, caring, doormat type behaviors um, that may be contributing to a dysfunctional relationship. So when the person sets boundaries, that's taking away some of the reward to the other person in the relationship who may be taking advantage. Remember, you can't just eliminate a behavior. All behaviors serve a purpose. Um, when you use a behavior for a particular purpose um, when you, and you eliminate it, you have to have something else that's going to serve that purpose. So if I'm on a diet and I want to quit eating chocolate, um, you know, that's great. But when I decide that I want to start eating again, you know, I'm like, oh, I really want chocolate, you know, for whatever reason, I need to have something else to put in its place, whether it's going on a run, drinking a soda, whatever. A lot of times we say, especially initially, use behaviors that are roughly similar but healthier. So it's harm reduction. So I would go, instead of eating chocolate, I might look for an apple. And then maybe wean down from there to look at, you know, why am I eating in the first place? Rewards and punishments can be emotional, mental, physical, social, spiritual, financial, and environmental. So we really want to look at the person in totality. You know, does it make them happier? Does it help them think more clearly? I know that's always rewarding to me. If I get a good night's sleep, then I'm so much more productive the next day. Does it help them with their appearance, their health, their pain, their energy, their sleep? Um, does it help them in their relationships or create a more pleasant environment? So the more rewards that can be gained for a behavior, the more motivation to repeat the behavior. So we, remember we talked about all those different types of motivations. So we want to encourage people to use decisional balance exercises to look at the rewards for the new behavior. But we also need to make sure that they look at the rewards for not changing because we've got to replace those rewards or make them less rewarding um, in order to help decrease the chances that that current behavior is going to stick around. So behavior one, social withdrawal. Social withdrawal is rewarding mainly due to negative reinforcement. You're eliminating the unpleasant. When people are really depressed, a lot of times they will, will withdraw socially because they are just out of energy. They don't have the emotional ability to deal with anybody else right now. They're drained, you know, whatever, however you want to say it. So the benefits to social withdrawal, it avoids extra stress. They won't disappoint anybody. If they withdraw, then they don't have to tell people no. Um, it uh, may give them more time with their cats. Maybe they love their cats. And they won't, don't feel like they're going to be a burden to anybody else if they just hole up in their room. Okay. So those could be potential benefits to social withdrawal. So we want to help them look at how do you minimize these things. So... If you're looking at getting social support, how can you get it without adding extra stress? And that may mean social support via social media, you know, texting instead of having to be around somebody or only one person, you know, don't reach out to 15 people, just reach out to one. Um, work on this fear that they're going to disappoint people. So that would be something we'd have to address. Um, help them figure out how... You know, they can get social support and still have time with their cats. It doesn't mean they have to be going out all the time. They can still hang with their kitty cats. Um, 
and we need to help them address their fear that they're going to be a burden to other people. So we need to address these things in order to take away some of their apprehensions about reaching out and getting social support. Now, the benefits to social support buffers against stress if you have healthy social supports. It can in increase positive neurotransmitters like serotonin and oxytocin, our bonding chemicals. So those are all benefits um, of social support. And you can go through other ones. But, you know, it's really important to tip that decisional balance and make it way more rewarding to do this new behavior than it is to do the old one. Behavior strain is the point at which reinforcement or punishment is no longer effective. Think about going to the gym. And a lot of people do this. I know I do sometimes. Um, I go to the gym. I decide I want to start going to the gym because I want to lose weight. And I go to the gym consistently for two weeks. And, you know, I am working my butt off. And that scale is not budging. And I'm just like, really? That, that's totally unfair. Eventually, if that reward of the change in the scale is not there, my motivation may go down for going to the gym. And that's what we call behavior strain. It's when the person becomes less motivated, less likely to do that behavior because they're not getting enough reward out of it. They're just like, what's the point? Um, and yes, I know when you work out, you shouldn't just use the scale as a barometer, but I was making an example. Um, behavior strain is affected by age. Younger children have a much shorter window for behavior strain. You can't tell them, well, if you do this and you behave for the entire month, then we'll do something. A child, no. You know, a really young child may need to have at least small rewards, like star charts, every single day because that's where they are cognitively. And cognitive development. Even older people who are at a younger stage of cognitive development, like people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, may experience behavior strain very quickly when they're not experiencing frequent rewards for their behavior. Um, and the strength of the reinforcement or punishment. You know, if somebody, if you do something for a week and somebody gives you $5,000, um, you know, you might be willing to do that again and maybe do it for two or three weeks before you get another reward if you're like, well, then it'll be $15,000, so score. Um, but if you do something and the reinforcement is not that strong, you know, you're just barely getting enough to squeak by, um, then you, you're, there's going to be behavior strain a lot more quickly because you're like, you're going to quickly get to the point of your, where you're going, is this really worth it? So smaller, more frequent rewards for completion of smaller goals provide rapid benefits, maintain momentum, and increase self-efficacy. Benefits all around. Hmm. Extinction burst. You don't need to worry about this a lot, but I'll give you a little anecdote real quick. Um, when I was in graduate school, I got my minor in behavior modification, and our, one of our labs, we taught, we had, all had pigeons, and we had to get our pigeon to do something. And my group, we taught our pigeon how to hokey pokey. Um, and you do that by harnessing the extinction burst in the pigeon. I don't recommend this for children because humans, you can express what you want um, and you can interact with them on a cognitive level. Pigeon, not so much. Um, but there's a, an extinction burst is a temporary increase in a behavior when rewards are absent or insufficient. They're like, okay, I, I asked for, you know, thinking, thinking about the pigeon first. 
the pigeon wants food. He's hungry. So he does what he's done before to get food, and he doesn't get food. And then he's like, well, it! I'm going to do it again. Give me food. And, you know, you still don't give him food. And then he becomes more aggressive um, and more excited in his presentation until he does the behavior that you want him to do. Um, so, you know, with the hokey pokey, he put his right foot in, he put his right foot out, he put his right foot in, and um, he flapped his wings. I can't remember how it goes now. Um, but we would wait in that extinction burst. First, he learned how to put his right foot in, and then we had to wait till he, he was, to use an emotional term, upset enough to pull his right foot out, and then we gave him food. And he was like, I don't know what just happened there. So then you got to do it a couple more times. And then eventually he got the um, shake it all about. Yeah. Um, the eventually he got it. A child in the store. This is the one that most of us can relate to. The child who's like, I want candy or I want Cocoa Pops. And you're like, no, you know, you don't need that. It's almost dinner time. And the child gets a little louder and says, I want candy. No, you're not going to have candy right now. I want candy. Okay, that's the extinction burst. The child is, the reward is sufficient that he's willing to exert a whole lot of effort to get it. And if you give in at the point where he's screaming, then you know what? The next time he wants candy, he's probably going to start there and just bypass those other stages that didn't work, which is why parents a lot of times have difficulty modifying children's behavior. Um, so you have this extinction burst. Eventually, the child will say, you know, it is not worth the effort to do this because the reward is just not coming, and they come to that realization. The behavior ceases when the demands or costs of the behavior, throwing the temper tantrum, exceed the potential reward. Um, so things that we can look at is, you know, what a person is doing for a promotion. They may be busting tail because they want to get a promotion, um, but at a certain point, if they get passed over for the first promotion, and then another promotion comes up, they get passed over for that, they may quit working as hard because they've been doing as much as they can. They increase their level of, of productivity or whatever with each Passover, and it still doesn't seem, seem to help. So they may just kind of give up, as you would say. The PREMAC principle is awesome. It means concurrently pairing something undesirable with something desirable, like laundry folding with watching television or exercise with socialization, you know, going to the gym with a friend or playing with your dog or something. Studying with peer support. You know, I prefer to study in study groups because misery loves company. I don't know. Um, shaping. And I know we're going a little fast, but I want to make sure we get through this. Shaping means rewarding successive approximations of the target behavior and punishing or ignoring non-target behavior, which means, you know, you don't want to provide negative attention to somebody for doing something or to an animal for doing something. Shaping helps solidify gains. Um, so you want to, and then you want to have them do something a little bit more difficult. And it's easier if I give you the example. My dog, Brewster. He gets, he loses his mind when I come home. So my goal was for Brewster to meet me at the door and quietly sit so I could pet him, not knock me over. Um, so target behavior number one was just that I could come in and Brewster wouldn't jump on me. 
So when he got to the place where every day I could come in and he wouldn't jump on me, I was like, great. And, you know, I would reward that behavior when he would calm down a little bit. Then I withheld rewards. I would walk in and he wouldn't jump, but until he sat, I would not pet him. Um, so once he got the hang of that, that when he, when I came in, not only did he have to not jump, but he had to sit down. I don't even have to give him the hand sign anymore. He sees me and he sits down and he's like, mommy, pet me, please. Um, so that's how we move to target behavior three. So each time they get used to doing a behavior, you know, they've solidified that gain, then you make it a little more difficult to get the reward or you move it a little bit closer. Um, laundry is another thing you can do. You know, if your kids or your roommate or whatever doesn't, don't put their laundry away or don't put their laundry in the hamper. You know, target behavior number one would be to, at the very least, bring your laundry down to the laundry room once a week. Target behavior number two might be to make sure that your laundry gets into the laundry basket every single day. And then target behavior number three would be putting it all together. Not only get your clothes into the laundry basket, but bring them down. So shaping. And um, one of the behaviors that we can shape is self-injurious behavior like cutting. So target behavior number one, um, if we're going to shape it, the person's not going to go from self-injury self to, oh, I don't need to do that anymore, 90% of the time. So what can we do instead? You know, we look at the reasons, the function of that cutting behavior, which is often, you know, giving them a sense of control or letting them feel something, and we replace it. So an ice cube or snapping a rubber band um, is a great alternative behavior for the person to do instead of the cutting behavior. Um, ink pen is another thing that some of my clients will do. They don't want to hold the ice cube, but they will take a red ink pen and instead of actually cutting themselves, they draw on themselves. Is it the healthiest? No, I'm not saying it is, but it is definitely much less injurious than actually cutting themselves. Once they get to the place where they're not cutting at all anymore and they're always using an ice cube or an ink pen or, or whatever it is, um, then you can say, all right, now let's try, instead of doing that when you have the urge, what other self-soothing behavior might you put in, in the place? Um, stress eating is an another one that you can shape. So the target behavior, if you don't want to stop stress eating, put fruit on a plate and have the person do a mindfulness exercise. So instead of just grazing, you know, you're putting the food on a plate and you're doing a mindfulness exercise, which some people don't want to do, which is why I said it's the pre-MAC principle, because they're getting to eat, but they're also doing this mindfulness exercise to say, why am I eating right now? Target behavior two would be, you know, once they get to the hang of doing that, they're used to doing the mindfulness exercise, they're becoming more aware of why they're eating. Instead of food, replace it with a drink and a mindfulness exercise. And then when they're able to do that consistently, drop the ingestion altogether. And when they want to stress eat, have them just do a mindfulness exercise and figure out what it is that's going on with them. Are they truly hungry or is there something else that needs to be addressed? Chaining is a cascade effect leading to a behavior. So behavior, stimuli, reinforcements, and punishments all lead up to a positive or negative result. So think about, you know, this two examples, car problems. You know, 
example number one, you slept well, you got up on time on Monday morning, you got ready for work, you had a good breakfast, you start driving to work and the car breaks down. You get irritated. Most people would. Okay, you call for assistance. You know, that's the ideal situation. The same person, maybe, you know, three months later, didn't sleep well. They got up late. They um, got ready for work. When they were eating breakfast, they spilled coffee on their shirt, so they had to go change. That was irritating. Then they started driving to work, and the car breaks down. So they had one, two, three, four things that added up in this short time period that led to an emotional dysregulatory episode. Um, and when they got that upset, it made it more difficult for them to think straight. So we want people to think about, you know, what led up to this? What makes you more vulnerable to getting to a place where you're emotionally dysregulated? So stress eating, you know, somebody may have a bad day at work and then they come home and the first thing they do is start eating. Why? Because a lot of things they're eating are probably going to cause the release of dopamine and serotonin, which lets them feel better. So, you know, these are the things that happened during the day. These are the stimuli that happened during the day that all kind of linked together one thing after another to end up with this ultimate behavior. Panic attack. The person doesn't sleep well. We know that lack of sleep keeps the H HPA axis activated a little bit more. So they didn't sleep well. They get up. They drink two cups of really strong coffee. They get stuck in traffic driving to work. So now they're going to be late. So now they're, you know, frustrated, stressed out. Plus, they've got all of this, these stimulants going through their system, and they have a panic attack. You know, so we can look back and say, what was different on the days that you didn't have a panic attack driving to work or on the days you didn't have a panic attack versus this day? And they can identify triggers along the way. If you eliminate behavior, you've got to replace it with at least one, preferably three new ones. Give people options. Most people are motivated for rewards and to avoid punishment. So those decisional balance exercises that we've been talking about for a couple of weeks can help people make new behaviors rewarding and old behaviors less rewarding. There's always going to be some little element of reward, but we want to make it more beneficial to do the new behavior. Remember that reinforcers have to be reinforcing to that person. If they don't care, then it's not going to be rewarding. When a client's trying to change a behavior, analyze exceptions to this behavior to identify positive, possible alternative rewarding behaviors or discriminative stimuli. You know, this kind of goes to the chaining. What was different when you did not lose your temper? What was different when you did not do this and that helps us understand you know what kinds of things what kinds of ways to arrange their environment and things to do to help them be more prepared for success behavior chains looking back over you know what led up to this can help identify antecedents and triggers and vulnerabilities that predispose the person or set them up for the problematic incident Remember that every behavior is maintained by rewards, and eliminating behavior means making that behavior less rewarding than the alternative, and making the new behavior more rewarding than the alternative. And I managed to get us out right at 1 o'clock. Are there questions? Um, I saw a couple other things I didn't re respond to during the webinar. Um, 
And yes, parents often do, Jerry points out, parents often interpret the extinction burst as consequences not working because the child is getting progressively loud. And it's important for them to understand that the child is going to try harder to get his way until it's just not worth the effort. And you got to just grin and bear it to get through that as long as the child is safe and the, per the adult is safe. Um, yeah, so our pigeon, he put his right right foot in, put his right foot out. He'd put his right foot in and he'd flap his wings about. He'd do the hokey pokey and he'd turn himself around. That's what it's all about. And then he'd peck twice on the little um, button to get his food. So it took us a semester to get him to do that. But, you know, poor, poor little bird. <laughs> and yes, one form of positive reinforcement that we can give people is praise you know that love language of positive affirmations when they're doing good and because especially because we have a power differential no matter how much you try to get rid of it there's always a power differential in these in our relationships people often feel very validated when they get um, positive reinforcement from their therapist or their parents Alrighty, everybody have a great Tuesday and I will see you on Thursday let me see Christine asks, um, do you find it beneficial to track progress with clients like through behavioral charts? Yes. Yes. Um, behavior modification is so much more effective if you get a baseline at the beginning to find out how often, what is the frequency, intensity, and or duration of the behavior before intervention, and then track that behavior throughout in order to identify the small changes. So if Johnny goes from three temper tantrums a day, each one lasting 30 minutes, to three temper tantrums a day, but each one's only lasting, you know, between 15 and 20 minutes, that's progress. And those small incremental progress steps are really helpful um, to rewarding the behavior change. I do have other videos, more in-depth videos on behavior modification on our YouTube channel, allceus.com slash YouTube. Um, obviously, I just couldn't go into everything, uh, including schedules of reinforcement and all that kind of stuff in one hour. So uh, if you're interested in behavior modification, I do have more videos available um, as well as, you know, other people do too. But alrighty, everybody. See you Thursday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.